0: Hello and welcome to the sixth episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. My name is Anna Pratoldi, and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Joining me for this podcast are Maura McIntosh, who's a professional support consultant in the litigation team, and Daniel Woods, who's a senior associate in the disputes team. In this edition, I'll look at the impact of Brexit on disputes and dispute resolution clauses, focusing on some practical points for commercial parties. Then Maura will outline some developments on privilege and funding, as well as a very brief update on witness evidence reform. And finally, Daniel will consider the outlook for competition class actions, particularly in light of the Supreme Court decision in the MasterCard case shortly before Christmas. So, Brexit. I'm going to start by just recapping briefly on where we are on jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments. Now the UK is no longer part of the EU and the transition period has ended. The key point really is that unless proceedings were started in the UK or in an EU court before the end of 2020, The previous rules on jurisdiction and enforcement under the recast Brussels regulation no longer apply in cases involving the UK. And nor does the Lugano Convention apply. So that's the convention that contains similar provisions to the recast Brussels regulation and applies as between EU member states, which included the UK up to the end of 2020, but not any longer, and three of the EFTA countries, Iceland, Norway and Switzerland. The UK is hoping to re-acceed to Lugano, but it needs the unanimous consent of contracting parties, including of course the EU, and to date that consent hasn't been forthcoming. We should in theory know the EU's position by 8th April, which is one year from the date of the UK's application to rejoin, but for the moment we, we just don't know. We understand the decision may be with Michel Barnier's team rather than the Justice Department of the Commission, but it's all rather unclear at the moment. If the UK does re-accede to Lugano, then that convention will apply between the UK and EU member states, as well as Norway, Switzerland and Iceland, and it's in similar form to recast Brussels. So if that happens, not much will change. Most significantly, English judgments will continue to be easily enforceable around the EU and the three EFTA countries. If the UK can't rejoin Lugano, then the question whether an English judgment will be enforceable around the EU will depend in part on whether it's covered by the 2005 Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements. That will apply where the English court had jurisdiction over the dispute, based on an exclusive English jurisdiction clause entered into, after Hague entered into force for the UK. Exclusive for these purposes almost certainly doesn't include asymmetric clauses. And there's some uncertainty as to whether the relevant date for the UK is 1st October 2015, when the EU signed most member states up to the Convention, including the UK, or 1st January 2021, when the UK rejoined Hague in its own right. We think the better view is the earlier date, but the European Commission has taken the opposite view. Ultimately, it will be a matter for EU member state courts to decide, and potentially the CJU, if there's a dispute about whether an English judgment can be enforced under Hague, where the jurisdiction clause was entered into between those two dates. But putting that aside... What is clear is that for agreements entered into going forward, if there is an English uh, Exclusive Jurisdiction Clause, the 2005 Hague Convention will apply, and so any resulting judgment should be readily enforceable around the EU under Hague. Not, Not in Iceland, Norway or Switzerland, as those countries aren't party to Hague, but The UK and Norway have recently entered into an agreement on mutual enforcement, which means English judgments will be readily enforceable there, at least, even if we don't join Lugano. But generally, uh, if Hague doesn't apply, and assuming, of course, we don't have Lugano, then the question of whether an English judgment can be enforced in a particular EU member state, or in Iceland or Switzerland... And if so, how will be a matter for local law, including any bilateral treaties, which might still apply. We believe most countries are likely to enforce an English judgment in most cases, although it's likely to take longer and cost more. But there may be difficulties in in some countries. We understand the Scandinavian countries and Austria may be problematic, for example. So if in an ideal world you want English jurisdiction and You want the certainty of being able to enforce any judgment in the EU, regardless of whether the UK is able to accede to Lugano. An exclusive English jurisdiction clause is probably a good bet so as to take the benefit of Hague, depending, of course, on how easy or difficult it would otherwise be to enforce in the relevant EU member state. But the advantage of an exclusive clause does need to be balanced against the loss of flexibility to bring proceedings in other courts, particularly if you also need to enforce in some country outside the EU and there's any uncertainty as to whether that country will enforce an English judgment. For agreements entered into before the end of 2020 with an English jurisdiction clause, if you want to be certain that the jurisdiction clause will fall within Hague, It's worth thinking about entering into a new agreement, either to restate the jurisdiction clause, if it was an exclusive clause in the original agreement, or to move to an exclusive clause if, for example, the original choice was a non-exclusive or asymmetric clause. In most cases, of course, whether this is achievable will depend on whether the counterparty is willing to cooperate in entering into the new agreement. That is, unless the original agreement contained a term requiring the counterparty to enter into a new agreement to this effect. We have seen some agreements with such clauses, particularly where a contract was entered into very shortly before the end of the Brexit transition period. And of course, unless the point is urgent for some reason, it may be worth waiting to see if we rejoin Lugano, in which case the issue goes away. Finally, just a word about uh, arbitration. The good news is that neither arbitration clauses nor the enforcement of arbitral awards is affected by Brexit. So whether an arbitration is seated in London or elsewhere, the award will be easily enforceable throughout the EU as all EU member states are parties to the New York Convention. Now, that's obviously a very quick summary of some complicated areas but there's more information available on our blog and we've put links to a couple of the
1: review posts on the podcast page. I'll now hand over to Maura. Thanks Anna. I'll start with a decision on privilege in the PJSC Tatneft litigation which is a case we mentioned a couple of episodes ago on another privilege point at that time about privilege in the advice of foreign lawyers. This further decision is about waiver of privilege and the question of whether a party might waive privilege by asserting in evidence or submissions that a particular issue has not been discussed with their lawyers. The High Court held that in this case, the claimant had not waived privilege in the underlying communications with the lawyers, essentially because there'd been no voluntary disclosure. The claimant had merely responded to the defendant's assertions as to what the claimant must have known as a result of the communications with the lawyers. The court drew a distinction between a situation where a party has chosen to put forward a positive case relying on legal advice which may include a negative proposition and where they've merely denied an assertion made by the other party as to the contents of a privileged communication and the decision suggests that there'll be no waiver if the party's just responding to the opponent's assertion. Now that's helpful but it shouldn't be taken too far I think. In practice, in many cases, there may be a a rather fine line between a negative proposition which puts forward a positive case and one which just responds to an opponent's assertion. So, for example, in Guest Supplies and South Place Hotel, which was decided very shortly after PGSC Tatnaft, the court found that a claimant had waived privilege as a result of a negative assertion. In that case, the issue arose in the context of an application for disclosure of the original version of an important agreement where there was a dispute about its authenticity. The claimant gave evidence explaining why the original of that agreement no longer existed and claiming that he had, quote, never said certain things to his solicitor about the provenance of the version that had been disclosed. And the court held that As a result of that assertion, uh, that he had never said certain things to his lawyer, he'd waived privilege in any communications with his lawyer relating to the creation or authenticity of the document. So I think that illustrates the dangers. Next, I want to look at two decisions on costs and funding. The first is a court of appeal decision in the ingenious media litigation in which this firm is acting for one of the defendants. It shows that where a defendant applies for an order for security for costs, it will only be in a rare and exceptional case that the defendant is required to provide a cross-undertaking in damages to cover loss that the claimant might suffer as a result of providing the security. And where the application for security is against a commercial litigation funder, it will be even rarer and and more exceptional for the cross-undertaking to be required. And I think this effectively reverses the trend of First instance cases that we had seen that suggested cross undertakings were becoming, in effect, the norm where security was ordered. And the other case I want to mention on costs and funding is the Court of Appeals decision in Lexlaw and Zuberi, which helpfully clarifies that there's no problem with a damages based agreement or, or DBA, including a provision about payment on early termination. So that, for example, the lawyer could receive payment on a time cost basis or perhaps discounted um, time costs, if the client ended the retainer before the case concluded. Now, there'd been some uncertainty as to whether such a term might invalidate a DBA because of the unclear drafting of the 2013 DBA regulations, which on their strict wording might be taken to suggest that the lawyer can't receive anything at all under the agreement, even on termination, other than a share of damages if the claim succeeds, plus certain types of expenses. The decision also supports the validity of so-called hybrid DBAs, which provide for a percentage share of damages on a win, but also allow the lawyer to be paid some sort of fee, such as by reference to discounted time costs if the case loses, or possibly even combining a a share of damages and discounted hourly rate on a win. The general view before this decision was that hybrids weren't permitted under the 2013 regulations. So again, this decision is helpful, though there was a difference in reasoning between the different Court of Appeal judges, which means some aspects of the decision aren't as clear as one might wish for. But still, I think the decision is likely to mean that more solicitors are prepared to offer DBAs and potentially hybrid DBAs, which I think is good news for clients who are looking for more flexible fee arrangements with their lawyers, particularly as an alternative to hourly rates. And finally for me an update on the reforms to trial witness statements in the business and property courts which we've spoken about in our last couple of podcasts. The rules will involve quite significant changes to the way witness statements are dealt with including new obligations to state how well the witness recalls important disputed matters of fact and identify all documents the witness has referred to or been referred to for the purpose of providing the statement. Now, at the time of our last podcast in late November, the rules were still subject to approval by the Civil Procedure Rule Committee. That approval has now been given, and the rules will apply to all trial witness statements signed on or after the 6th of April. So it's obviously important for parties to get to grips with the the new rules now. And on that point, it's worth noting that the final versions of the PD and appendix, which have now been published, uh, contain some reasonably significant changes from the drafts that had previously been circulated, including changes to the statement of compliance that the witness is required to sign. So in particular, the, the statement, um, now requires the witness to confirm that the witness statement is in their own words without any express reference to what's practicable, which may be seen as surprising since the requirement for a witness statement to be in the witness's own words has, has always included the qualification that this is if practicable. So, I guess we'll have to see how that works in practice.
0: Thanks, Maura. I'll now hand over to Daniel to look at competition class actions.
2: Thanks, Anna. As many listeners will be aware, competition class actions in the UK proceed quite differently from other types of class action under a specific regime introduced in 2015. And there's been a growing sense of momentum behind this regime after a fairly slow start, initially. Under the regime, claims can be brought in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, or the CAT, on behalf of a defined class of consumers or businesses, or both, who have allegedly suffered loss arising from competition law infringements. A key feature of the regime, compared to the more usual group litigation order procedure that is used for group actions in the High Court, is that claims can be brought on either an opt-in or an opt-out basis subject to the cat's approval. As you'd expect, an opt-in claim means that only those claimants who have actively opted in will be included. An opt-out claim, in contrast, will automatically include anyone in the UK following within the class definition unless they actively opt-out. And it will be obvious to those listening that Um, where a claim can proceed on an opt-out basis is much easier to get the action off the ground, particularly where a large number of consumers have been affected, but individual losses may be small, as is often the case for competition infringements. The way the procedure works is that the proposed class representative applies to the CAT for a Collective Proceedings Order or CPO. Before the CAT will grant a CPO, it has to be satisfied that certain requirements are met including that the claims raise the same, similar or related issues of factual law and that they are suitable to be brought in collective proceedings. the court will consider these requirements at a hearing which is often referred to as a certification hearing. Since the regime was brought in in 2015, there have been 10 applications for a collective proceedings order, but so far only two that have proceeded to a certification hearing one of which was withdrawn before a definitive decision was taken on certification. The most significant case has been Merrick's and Mastercard, relating to losses alleged to have resulted from the use of anti-competitive multilateral interchange fees, which is said were passed on to consumers by merchants as part of retail prices over a period of 16 years. The claims have been brought on behalf of over 46 million consumers, seeking total damages of 14 billion pounds, an average loss of just 300 pounds per claimant, but a huge sum in total. In the Mastercard case, the CAT refused certification back in July 2017, on the basis that claims were not suitable to be brought as a collective action, in particular because first he was not persuaded that there was sufficient data to calculate the level of any overcharge passed on to consumers by merchants. And second, that even if aggregate loss could be calculated, the CAT did not see a plausible way of estimating individual loss at the damages distribution stage in accordance with the general principle that damages for breach of competition law must be compensatory in nature. The Court of Appeal allowed the applicant's appeal adopting a less restrictive approach to certification than the CAT had taken and the supreme court dismissed mastercard's appeal so the claim will now be remitted to the CAT for a new certification hearing the supreme court decision is significant for a number of reasons including because most of the certification applications in other cases were effectively on hold pending the supreme court's decision in mastercard There's been a lot of comment about how the judgment is a revolution for competition class actions and that it'll make it easier for more claims to be brought. But of course, it's important to remember that the Supreme Court's ruling does not amount to a determination of the certification application and does not address the merits of the claim itself. However, it does mean that a roadblock has been cleared and the pending claims can proceed to their certification hearings as well as, I suspect, um, other applications that have been waiting in the wings while the Supreme Court decision was awaited. Perhaps the most significant aspect of the Supreme Court's decision is its finding that the statutory requirement for claims to be suitable to be brought in collective proceedings should be interpreted as meaning suitable in a relative sense. In other words, more suitable to be brought in collective proceedings with an aggregate award of damages Than through individual proceedings with individual damages. That approach suggests that the courts may take a fairly generous approach to certification of claims brought on behalf of a large number of consumers, who are each alleged to have suffered relatively little loss, where it would simply not be feasible for claims to be brought individually. This is the case in the Mastercard case itself where the Supreme Court said the prospect of individual proceedings by over 46 million consumers would be a practical impossibility, and so collective proceedings would clearly be preferable. But it is far from clear what this relative approach to suitability means for claims brought on behalf of classes made up primarily of corporate claimants with higher value individual losses. Such claimants would arguably be in a better position to bring individual claims, and it may be that such claims are more suitable for individual determination than collective determination and so it's possible that the supreme court's approach may weigh against certification in such cases particularly if individual claims have been lodged in parallel before the high court or the cat which is something we have seen in a number of the other ongoing cpo applications another key element of the mastercard judgment is that the court disagreed with the cat's view that there had to be a plausible way of estimating individual loss at the damages distribution stage. The Supreme Court pointed out that the legislation establishing the collective proceedings regime expressly removes the ordinary requirement for the separate assessment of each claimant's loss in circumstances in which an aggregate award of damages is sought. So essentially, the Supreme Court has taken the view that as long as an aggregate award of damages is compensatory to the class as a whole, the compensatory principle is not essential in the distribution of aggregate damages under collective proceedings. The only requirement is that distribution should be just in the sense of being fair and reasonable. So that's potentially significant as well. Many of the pending applications for CPOs as well as the Merrick's application that has been remitted to the CAT, are due to be heard in the first half of 2021. Therefore, we will soon see how the Supreme Court's decision is applied in these other cases. Only then will we be able to properly assess what the long-term impact of the Merrick's decision will be.
0: Thank you, Daniel. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you to Maura and to Daniel and to all of you for listening. We'll be back with our next edition in a couple of months.